I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. Charlotte, quick question for you. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about flying? Um, I'm good with it. I'm not scared. I've been flying since I was very, very young, so I'm I'm good with it. It doesn't bother me at all. How about you? Well, you first of all, everyone listening, I feel like I have to really emphasize this. Charlotte is a tough bitch. Whatever. Get out of here. No, you act like no, you so are. Like you you you've done a lot of shit. I feel like I'm a giant wuss compared to you because I can't even fly sober. Oh my god, no way. <laughs> I have to have some kind of like wine in me or something. I get really nervous. And the worst part is once the wine kicks in, I kind of get this feeling of like accepting that I could die at any moment and I just like calm down. Oh my goodness. And I noticed that one of my first flights as an adult, I remember sitting there and I was just kind of laid back and I'm like, huh, I could literally die right now. All right. I mean, it's good to come to terms with, well, it's something that's going to happen to all of us as a human being, but to take it so chill like that, my goodness. I know, right? It's, I mean, I feel like I should panic more, but then I, I'd end up on the internet if I did that, and we can't have that. Now, dear listeners, you may be wondering, why are we talking about flying? And I am sorry to say, this story is probably going to make you think twice the next time you board a plane. We are changing things up a little bit this week, friends. That's right. We are bringing you uh, actually one of my favorite kind of cases to cover, a survivor story. We have not done one of these in a hot minute. Our very first, I guess our only other survivor story was about the amazing Mary Vincent. I think that was episode like 15. It was back in the early days. I do highly suggest checking out that episode as well because Mary is one badass, resilient woman. Her story is an amazing one and more people should know about it. Today we are bringing you a truly harrowing story of survival. Julianne Coca, now known as Julianne Diller, was only 17 years old when she found herself fighting for her life after the flight she was on fell 10,000 feet and crashed into the Peruvian Amazon rainforest. She was the only survivor of that deadly disaster, and it would be 11 days until she would be found. This is a mind-blowing story of survival, you guys, because what she went through... Dina just said that I was tough. I am not this tough by any freaking means. Whatever you believe in, whether it's a higher power or the universe or just luck, whatever, something out there did not want this girl to die. I honestly, like, I, I love a good survivor story. I think we should cover more of these. So if you have any that you want us to cover, please let us know. I first heard about this story not too long ago when I found out she wrote a book about it. And I had to read it because just it blew my mind just like that that first little bit just finding out a tiny bit about this story you're just like well I have to know more mm -hmm. and the main source for this episode is going to be that book it's called when I fell from the sky the true story of one woman's survival I highly recommend it it's not too long but it's one that you're not going to be able to put down and she wrote it as an adult in 2011 so quite a while after the crash happened and it's it's interesting to hear her perspective after she's had time to process everything. Truly. And I want you guys to remember throughout this story, she was 17 years old when all of this happened. And her resilience is absolutely unbelievable. Like Dina said, if there is some kind of fate out there or this woman just had a horseshoe up her butt, 
amazing. Absolutely amazing. It really is. Our story starts on December 24th, 1971. Julianne was traveling by plane with her mother, Maria. They weren't initially supposed to be on this flight. They were originally scheduled to set out earlier that week. However, Julianne had recently finished high school in Lima and wanted to attend her school's graduation ceremony. So they decided to instead set out on Christmas Eve. And of course, it being Christmas Eve, all of the flights were booked up. The ones that weren't had been cancelled due to the weather, all except one, Lanza Flight 508. Her father, Hans Wilhelm, argued against the two boarding the plane. Lanza didn't have the best reputation at the time, and he urged the two to wait. I'm a huge believer in listening to my gut. Like, I get that her mom wanted to get to where they were going as quickly as possible, and I'm not blaming anyone, but I would have such a hard time getting on a flight, even if I had, like, the slightest feeling, like, the tiniest thing I could consider a bad omen or anything. I'd be like, no, I'm out. Yeah, I'm also a big believer in listening to your instincts. And also, if you guys ever read about this actual plane, apparently it was the most rickety piece of garbage you've ever heard of. Right? Like, that's it's the whole thing is terrifying. Okay, so let's get into this flight. They were headed to Pacalpa in the Peruvian Amazon rainforest. The plane wasn't actually up in the air for very long before everything went to hell. They were in the air for about 30 minutes before they began to fly towards a thunderstorm. No one on the plane seemed too worried. People were in pretty high spirits. In fact, Julianne remembers everyone on board smiling and laughing. There were wrapped Christmas presents mixed in with people's luggage. The stewardesses were beginning to go around and they were chatting with everyone and bringing them drinks and snacks. Including the crew, there were 92 people on board. In the book, she talks about how she remembers the plane going into the storm, and I wanted us to share her own words from her book, because this description gave me chills. The pilot does not avoid the thunderstorm, but flies straight into the cauldron of hell. It turns to night around us, in broad daylight. Lightning is flashing feverishly from all directions. At the same time, an invisible power begins to shake our airplane as if it were a plaything. The people cry out as objects fall on their heads from the violently opened overhead compartments. Bags, flowers, packages, toys, wrapped gifts, jackets, and clothing rain down hard on us. Sandwich trays and bags soar through the air, and half-finished drinks splatter on our heads and shoulders. Everyone is frightened, and I hear screams and cries. (sighs) this book legitimately gave me nightmares. (laughs) Like I said in the beginning, I'm not scared of flying by any means. And to be honest, I was actually, I was actually talking to Cody and he's not a huge fan of flying, but he does okay once he's like up in the air. But I actually find turbulence. Like I'm like, Ooh, this is adventurous. Like what's, this is great. And Cody's like, are you fucking for real? And I was like, yeah, it's all part of I don't know, the adventure of being on a flight. And he's like, okay, you're crazy. (laughs) That's something a tough person would say. No, not at all. You are proving my point that you are tough. But more to the point is I'm I'm hearing this, um, you know, the telling of this story. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, my heart is beating faster. And I'm feeling the anxiety. 
I read this book around the time my mom was flying back home to Europe. Oh my god, Dina. (laughs) No, seriously, during the week that she was flying out, I was reading this book. Lord have mercy, woman. Yeah, just horrible timing. It really is. Julianne also talks about how her mother seemed very nervous, which she didn't really understand. She really liked flying and she was eager to get to where they were going. She thought everything was going to be fine. Maria turned to Julianne and said, that is the end. It's all over. This would be the last exchange the two would have. You know what I wondered about this phrase? Mm Mm-hmm. Is she like, oh, the storm is over or this is it? I think she's saying this is it. This is how it's going to end. Because I think to some degree, most people are in kind of the mindset of this couldn't possibly be happening to me right now. And she had probably just come to terms with the fact that this is truly happening. And I don't think we're going to make it out of this one. That's so sad. It really is. A bright light flashed from the right wing of the plane. The lights shut off, leaving the already terrified passengers now in total darkness. Lanza Flight 508 then began to plummet towards the ground. And once again, no one can tell this story better than Julianne herself, so we'd like to share another quote from the book. An intense astonishment comes over me because now my ears, my head... No, I myself am completely filled with the deep roar of the plane, while its nose slants almost vertically downward. We're plummeting, but this nosedive too I experience as if it lasted no longer than the blink of an eye. From one moment to the next, the people's screams go silent. It's as if the roar of the turbines has been erased." My mother is no longer at my side, and I'm no longer in the airplane. I'm still strapped to my seat, but I'm alone. At an altitude of about 10,000 feet, I'm alone. And as I'm falling, slicing through the sky about two miles above the earth. So essentially, she was strapped to like the row of seats, and one minute her mom was beside her, and the next she was not. She saw the jungle growing closer and closer, and she would later say that it surprised her how much the trees looked like broccoli rather than trees. She says in her book, Suddenly the noise stopped and I was outside the plane. I was in a free fall, strapped to my seat bench and hanging head over heels. The whispering of the wind was the only noise I could hear. I felt completely alone. And for a few moments, she lost consciousness. When she woke up, she was still falling. She passed out again. The next time she woke up, it was morning and she was on the ground. Her thoughts were that of surprise. She was legitimately shocked that she had survived the crash. And quite right, to be honest with you. Right? Can you blame her? I'd be convinced I was dead and somehow still walking around. (laughs) Yeah. I'd be like, oh, okay, this is is it. This is the afterlife. I just kind of assume it kind of was like it was in the movies like oh i've stepped out of my body and this is just my spirit walking around you know exactly but as it turns out her only injuries were a concussion a small cut on her arm a broken collarbone and a cut on her leg in the grand scheme of things that's nothing she immediately began to call for her mother but she did not respond no one did All she could hear was the sound of the rainforest. 
a rainforest that held horrifying animals such as the jaguar, anaconda, eyelash viper, caimans, and scorpions, just to name a few. To make matters worse, she could barely see because she had lost her glasses at some point during the crash. On a lighter note, we also want to give an honorable shout out to the two super fun birds from the area, the potu and the cock of the rock. The cock of the rock is actually super fun looking. Okay, just give me one sec. I have to Google. Of course, of course, we must. Um, wow, they are bright. <laughs> Holy cow, that is like traffic cone orange. Love it. That Such is a style. theatrical bird, isn't it? No kidding. All right, but uh, let's get back to the nightmare. All right. Yes, because it was just beginning after all. Julianne wasn't like most 17-year-olds. She had spent a year and a half of her life living at her parents' research station in the rainforest. She was well aware of its risks and knew how to handle herself relatively well. However, that was always under the best circumstances. She was now barely clothed and was missing a shoe— All she had to eat was a small pack of candy, but she figured that was better than nothing at all. I want to remind all of you, because this this is the thing that makes it most terrifying to me. She can't see. I have (sighs) horrible eyesight. I can't get around my house without my glasses. Like, yours is pretty bad too, right? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty bad. I'm good up to about, I don't know, six to eight inches from my face, and then beyond that is just blurs of color. The idea of being lost like this and not being able to see is absolutely horrifying i've she definitely ta- had nightmares about that kind of thing to be oh honest with you like she talks about how there are venomous snakes around that would disguise themselves as leaves but knowing that didn't make a difference because she couldn't see the ground anyway oh my god that thought that any second you could step on something or if you fell and reached out and grabbed something and you thought it was a branch and it was not a branch you know oh my god and she only has one shoe Oh, oh, my, oh my God. God. This is an incredibly <laughs> stressful story. It's going to get so much worse. Julianne quickly realized that if she wanted to survive, she was going to have to find food and water. The rainforest was incredibly humid and hot during the day, but at night it would begin to get cold. If she wasn't going to starve to death, she was going to freeze. She found a creek and began to follow it because she knew that she would be safer near water. She would follow that creek for the next few days. During that time, the cut on her arm became a breeding ground for maggots. She would say later in an interview with CNN that it got so bad, she thought that if she did survive, she would lose her arm. In that same interview, she said, I still wonder how so many maggots could have fitted into that little hole. It was no bigger than a one euro coin. Oh, that that is awful. And I always remember my dad saying, like, giving me lectures on jungle warfare, as army dads do, <laughs> and being like, well, the reason guys don't shave in the jungle is because even the smallest nick can quickly become very infected and septic. And the fact that she survived the fall and was able to step up relatively unharmed yes she had broken collarbone and stuff like that but she wasn't a pancake Mm -hmm. and then to imagine that she could have died from sepsis from one of the cuts is also unimaginable and dear listeners if that didn't make your entire body clench up then this next part definitely will 
As she continued to walk along the creek, she began to find pieces of the plane wreckage. She found a can of gasoline and poured it all over her maggot-infested arm to disinfect it. Oh, I hate that. It's smart, but I hate it. She did that and continued on because she had no choice. If she wanted to survive, she had to keep moving. As she turned a corner, she began to see the true carnage of the crash. Three dead bodies, still buckled into their airplane seats, were, as she described, rammed headfirst into the earth. Her first thought was that one of the three was her mother. After some investigating, she determined that she was not among them. Eventually, the creek grew into a river, which made her hopeful. She hurried to a place where she expected to see people who were there to help. When she got there, she was devastated to see that she was still completely alone. She did have to swim through the river at one point, and this was despite the fact that in it were piranhas, stingrays, and other dangerous animals. Julianne survived this part of the journey, but was left with severe sunburns throughout her body from swimming in the sweltering sun for hours. You know what this story just reminded me of? Did you ever have to read the book Hatchet in school? Oh my god, that like brought back so many memories. Whoa. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's a lot of Albertan kids around our age or maybe even Canadian kids. I'm not sure. It was required reading in, I don't know, junior high at some point, I wow. feel like. Or maybe even grade six, something like that. Yeah. And that is a fictional story, but it is one like this of incredible survival of this a kid that gets in a plane crash and is the only survivor and has to survive basically very similar things, but it's up north in the Canadian wilderness kind of thing or in Alaska, something like that. But I'm very much getting the same survival story of that. This story is unbelievable because the again, you said it a second ago, like it's the amount of things that she's like surviving back to back. And to be fair, Oh, absolutely. And to be fair, like growing up with her parents at their research station in the jungle taught her a lot about that kind of environment, which did arm her with the knowledge to help her survive. But not only did she have that knowledge, just the true constitution and mental and emotional strength that she had to keep going because I would have crumpled in this situation. I would crumple in that situation at this age, but I think about where I was at mentally at 17. That's very true. Oh my God. Th- yeah. I mean, Mm-mm. that. yeah, you're absolutely right. That that could have been a very different story. <laughs> it, my story would have ended very quickly. Do you think so? Me in the rainforest after surviving a plane crash, I would try to befriend a jaguar and it would eat me and that would be the end. Oh, man. Well, see, I had just come back from an army college experience at 17, so maybe I would have been more armed with survival knowledge. Who's to really say? (laughs) Anyway, back to Julianne, the true hero here. As time went on, she weakened further and further, and by day 10, she could barely stand. Instead, she was slowly drifting along the river. She describes this as feeling like she was in a parallel universe away from any other human being. She's moving along. There's animals trying to get at her. The sun is burning her alive. She's starving. The list of things that makes this terrible just doesn't end. Half conscious, she lifted up her head and to her surprise, she saw a boat. 
it wasn't until she touched it that she accepted that it was real and not a hallucination. There were no people near the boat, but there was a very obvious human trail. She used all of the strength she had to follow it. She walked uphill for hours. Finally, she saw a small shack. Once again, there was no one there, but there was a bed. Julianne was finally safe to at least get some rest. However, before she could sleep, she had to once again do something about the maggots which were causing her unbearable pain. She found more gasoline which she poured on the wound. She then picked countless maggots from her arm one by one, which at least eased the pain. Oh, that's... (sighs) I don't like that at all. Oh my god, I don't even have words for how much I don't like that. That is awful. Yeah, my stomach is honestly churning at the thought. Yep. The next day, January 3rd, 1972, she awoke to the sound of voices outside. She walked out and they immediately stopped talking. She said that at first, she felt like they didn't believe that she was a human. Julianne, who was fluent in Spanish, explained to them who she was and what had happened. The men treated her wounds and fed her, and then they took her to the closest town. There waiting for her was her father. Maria Kopka was found on January 12th. She did not die from the crash. She was severely injured and unable to move. Evidence shows that she unfortunately died slowly over the course of several days. This was likely the fate of 14 other people. Werner Herzog himself would serve as a friend and a sort of counselor to Julianne throughout her life. He was actually scheduled to be on that exact same flight. And this inspired his 1998 documentary, Wings of Hope, about Julianne. He spent decades trying to track her down so that they could meet and talk about the flights. She stayed out of the media for years. She stayed out of it from like the 70s to the early 2000s. No one could find her. She just minded her own business and did not want to talk to anybody. I, I can completely understand that. I'm sure talking about it and having to sort of relive something so intensely traumatic was not really a good experience here for quite some time, I would imagine. No, and it sounds like she did do the work during that time to heal from it, which I think is really, really good. Absolutely. Verna and Julianne visited the crash site years later. She would describe this experience as therapeutic. Julianne is now 68 years old. She has been married to her husband, Eric Diller, since 1989. She works as a mammologist, and her speciality is bats, which I think is hella cool. I love bats, have since I was a little girl. She just keeps on getting more and more badass, doesn't she? Absolutely. Like, what a fucking cool woman. And her husband is an entomologist who specializes in wasps. Man... They are so cool in the nerdiest way. I absolutely adore this. And her parents were both zoologists, so this is all kind of very fitting. It all comes full circle. She is also the current librarian at the Bavarian State Collection of Zoology in Munich and is the director of Panguana, a role that her father had before his death in the year 2000. All this to conclude, Julianne is... An absolute powerhouse of a woman who survived the 
almost unsurvivable. Anybody else in that situation, I don't know, would have been as strong as she was able to be. And it's interesting because she talks about that in quite a few of the interviews. It's like, why did I survive? It's crazy. I Unfortunately, along with that comes a lot of survivor's guilt, I'm sure. Yes, I actually have a quote from her that I'd like to share here. In 2010, she said in an interview about this, I had nightmares for a long time, for years, and of course the grief about my mother's death and that of the other people came back again and again. The thought of, why was I the only survivor, haunts me. It always will. I'm absolutely sure it will. But she seems to have done amazing things since then and continues to be a wonderful person. So I'm glad we can tell her story with a positive ending. Me too. And I think that's kind of the nice thing about these survivor stories. And I personally, I would love to cover more. Charlotte, I know you would too. Mm -hmm. If you guys have other survivors you want us to cover, you can email us at thegrimcurriculum at gmail.com or comment on one of our posts on the socials and we will add it to our list. We're always uh, keeping things in mind that you guys throw at us. So we really appreciate it. And of course, it is that time of the week again. It's time to thank our lovely, fantastic patrons. Giant thank you to Bob, Lisa, Atlantean Jedi, Judy, Hillary, Brian, Kevin, and Mayhem Mudkip. Thank you all so much. You're amazing. You sure are. You're really the cat's pajamas and the bee's knees. And as my sister likes to say, the titty city. Love it. Now, if you love the podcast, please remember you can support us by interacting with any of our social media posts, leaving us a thumbs up, a comment, a sweet thank you, whatever you want to call it. We appreciate it all. It helps boost us up in that glorious, glorious algorithm and uh, helps new people find us. And it's pretty cool when that happens. Yeah, speaking of new people, we seem to have gained suddenly a lot of new followers over on TikTok, which I never expected. We post a little teaser trailer type things over there when we do our episode. So if you're here and listening from TikTok, hello, hi, thank you for joining us. And if, yeah, and if you're new from anywhere else, hello, this is a hell of a story to start on and you guys should go check out our other stuff. Yeah, we have other fun. I feel like we've got a fair bit of fun news. We have a little something, something we'd like to to pass your way, dear listeners, especially our local listeners. Mm-hmm. We are thinking, we are pondering, we are maybe potentially looking at doing a Halloween live show or Halloween adjacent date wise live show. Yeah, so this is something that's sort of kind of very early stages, but we have a couple of ideas in mind. So if you are local or local-ish and you would like to meet us in person and listen to us blabber on in person, um, then let us know on the social medias. I sound like such a boomer, but you know what I mean. Um, (laughs) Because we would love to meet you guys. Yeah, and we have an amazing venue that is wanting to book us and it would just be really cool. I personally would love to do that. I hope you guys would love to do that. But yeah, let us know because yeah. Thank you all so much for listening. This has been The The Grim Grim Curriculum. Curriculum. Hey, Charlotte, fun fact. 
Mm-hmm. Did you know that if you drink bleach and unfortunately survive, doctors will have to remove your stomach and esophagus and extend your intestines to your throat like a tube, and all of that has to go over your rib cage? Oh my goodness. Yeah, don't drink bleach, you guys. We shouldn't have to say this. My God. Yeah, don't do that. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.